Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly and a Vickers Report special with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me this week is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and Chief Regulation Correspondent, Brooke Masters. Let's just start off with a reminder of what we've heard. Our recommendations aim to create a more stable and more competitive basis for UK banking for the longer term. That means a banking system that does three things. First, it's much less likely to cause or to succumb to financial crises and the huge costs which they bring. Second, it means a banking system which is self-reliant so that the taxpayer is never again on the hook for losses that banks make. Third, it means a banking system that is effective and efficient at providing the basic banking services, safeguarding retail deposits, operating secure payment systems and efficiently channeling savings to productive investments in the economy. Future stability requires that UK banks should have more equity capital and truly loss-absorbing debt beyond what has so far been agreed internationally. It also requires that retail banking activities should be structurally separated by a ring fence from wholesale and investment banking activities. Charlene, we've been wading around in this stuff for weeks and finally uh, we've been put out of our misery. Can you distill for our listeners the most important elements? Well, we've had a little bit of time to digest this now. I mean, there were no enormous surprises in the report. The broad thrust is that British banks will have to ring fence or separate effectively their core high street operations from the investment banking activities that are sort of widely perceived in the market as more volatile and, and riskier. The actual structure was quite interesting. It was a lot more flexible than some people had expected. Because there'd been a lot of complaints that if you put a rigid ring fence in place, then it could create real distortions in the market for some banks that might have had certain deposits orphaned, if you like, in, in certain parts of the business. Yeah, exactly. And also it would have meant effectively saying that one bank's structure is the right way to go while another one isn't because it might have hit Barclays harder than HSBC, for example. We saw in the run-up to the report banks putting out very different views on how they would like it structured. So actually they'll be able to adapt it to their own models, if you like, which is a very important concession. That weaken it, do you think? Because some reformers might say it does. Yeah, that's the big criticism. I mean, I, personally, I think it's probably the more sensible approach because there were lots of unintended consequences that would have come through having a more rigid line, such as, you know, small businesses were made to be inside and when they grew to a certain level of turnover, they had to flip into the other side and that could have immediately put up costs for them. So it would have been almost a disincentive there to grow. You also, like you say, could have trapped retail deposits in side and maybe encourage banks to do chase mortgage lending which would have increased the risk there and uh, so all of those kind of dangers have been eliminated but you know it could be harder to police with different banks having very different models it could be 
Um, it could take a lot longer to actually, you know, get the framework in place. On timing, they've talked about the longer end of the timetable that had yeah. been mooted, 2019, which is obviously another area of potential criticism. Absolutely. I mean, they've really sort of kicked it into the long grass is, is the broad criticism. The government have all reached the same conclusion that doing anything sooner, A, would be practically difficult and B, you know, would risk undermining lending and you know threatening to cut off the fragile economic recovery recovery that we've seen in in recent months but you know the problem there is that you know that none of this is going to happen within this parliament it could be an entirely different government that's taking this forward and obviously policies that are legislated for but not implemented may not be a big priority for the next government so we'll have to see now in terms of the cost implications the icb talked about up to seven billion of cost implications for the banks themselves, largely because it would cost them more to raise funding in the markets once they're no longer a a diversified holding company, but a split entity. Those costs would obviously in in part be pushed on to customers. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about the impact in detail on customers, but in terms of the kind of macro impact of that, the ICB was quite adamant that there would be a very minimal knock-on effect, weren't they? Well, it's coming from the view that its proposals, while they can never ensure there won't be another financial crisis, they believe this will remove the liability for the taxpayer to ever again have to bail out the banks. So they say, you know, the benefits potentially for the broader economy and the taxpayers, small businesses are huge. You know, the the estimates from the commission put the annual cost of financial crises at about 40 billion pounds. And that's effectively based on the fact that a financial crisis happens about every 20 years. And when it does happen, it wipes out about two thirds of of GDP. So that works out on average, you know, wiping out about 3% of GDP every year. So if we contrast that 40 billion annual headline cost with their estimations that this will cost the industry you know maybe a tenth of that you know between four and seven suddenly it's hard to argue that it's not a price worth paying but of course that will depend on whether you know their proposals work to stave off another crisis and that can only be tested in the years to come they also make the point that you know of that four to seven part of that is already factored in and actually only one to three billion would be the total social cost that's passed on not just to customers but to bank investors employees potentially through lower pay packets. Well, so John Vickers also made the really populist comparison between the, the 7 billion number for the cost and the the size of the bonus pool paid to bankers in London. which exactly. was you just wipe that out and it's yeah. all paid for, right? Yeah. I mean, the majority of those costs, like you said, would come from the higher funding and that will be predominantly in the businesses that fall outside of the ring fence. So largely the investment banking. The side investment of the bank and yeah. potentially some corporate Depending lending on and the flexibility yeah. issue of where the ring fence is put. Exactly. And and actually the Sir John said the costs that would be passed on to those customers would be very minimal. He's talking about sort of naught point one percent added to the cost of of a loan. I mean that's a far lower estimate than some others. Point. So that would mean if you yeah. pay two and a half percent for your loan at the moment you'd be paying two point six instead. Six, which is a minimal difference, although that does seem to be by far the lower end of the ranges. You know, we had other sort of economic forecasts saying that it would yeah. put up the the price by one point five percent. So yeah, sort of so you know, much, many much, fifteen much. times as much exactly. as, as they say. Now, Brooke, we've talked a lot about the ring fence, and that's the kind of big branded idea, I suppose, that has come out of the ICB report. But 
arguably the far more powerful change is what the ICB has recommended in terms of capital, particularly, I mean, it, they confirmed their interim recommendation from April that the ring-fenced entities would have to hold 10% equity capital, which is basically in line with where we are on the global stage for big banks. But interestingly, they went for a kind of Swiss finish, coming into line with the Swiss regulatory idea on Another layer of, of capital, so-called loss-absorbing debt, which they've talked about should be between 7 and 10%. Can you run through how that's going to work and to what extent the UK with Switzerland is now out on a limb? Well, it's a little unclear how it's going to work. The way the ICB seems to be envisioning it is that, that basically bank debt, high-quality bank debt, will have built into it the ability for regulators to impose losses if a bank goes down in the case of insolvency. That's an idea that's got adherence all over the world, but there's very little of it practically in place. The U.S. Dodd-Frank law does have a bail-in possibility written into it, although it's never obviously been used because it just got adopted, and no one's really clear whether anyone will actually do it. There's also another idea of bail-in, which some in the market like better, which are called COCOs, which are contingent convertible bonds, which would, I think, meet the ICB's definitions, but they actually trigger on market triggers, and it's built into the contract. So when you buy it up front, you know you're going to be forced to take losses or at least convert to equity if things go bad with your bank. What's interesting about all this is the uncertainty is that for investors, if you have the kind that's a regulatory trigger, it's kind of a two-way bet because you're betting that regulators will have the guts to impose losses on you, which of course they did not do in 2008. So it may be that it's a completely pointless argument, but you also can't predict exactly when they'll do it because there's no number. Like at this moment, we will impose losses. So I think pricing Bond, the first sets of bonds are coming through after a bail-in regime will be quite difficult. In summary, though, this report is fairly bad news for bondholders more than any other constituency, really, isn't it? It is, although, you know, the world is moving this way anyway. The, the Financial Stability Board, which sets global points of view, the U.S. regulators are all moving towards bail-in. The FSA has a consultation out about bail-in. I mean, I think... Yes, the ICB has formally recommended it, but we've been moving this way. Because there was such anger at the taxpayer bailout where taxpayers paid and bondholders didn't, the idea that we could dream of a system that that was going to continue, I think, was a vain hope on the part of bond investors. And I suppose looking at yesterday's performance on the stock market and on the bond market as well, it's very difficult to distinguish between investors' absorption of the Vickers plan compared with the general tumult on European stock and bond market. If anything, the, the French banks are doing worse. So I think, frankly, a bailed-in UK bank sounds a lot better than a dead French bank. So it's very hard to tell. OK, we've talked about the investor constituency. We mentioned customers a bit earlier, but Charlene, the knock-on effect of these changes on customers could be quite significant. Maybe what the ICB is estimating, a minimal increase in credit charges might be true. But beyond that, what, what do you think we should expect? Like you say, the the actual cost implications are probably less severe for consumers, small businesses as well. And that's but partly really because the flexibility of the ring fence has, has been increased. And I mean, that's one of the things the ICB says is earlier estimates were far higher because there wasn't this flexibility. Yeah, that and also the fact that you're keeping the implicit government guarantee for the ring fence business for a much smaller part of the business so effectively. people think, although the so ICB is adamant that that they, isn't the case. Yeah, I mean, they say, look, there is none, neither part of the bank is implicitly guaranteed by the taxpayer anymore. That's but the whole idea of the ring fence, basically, yeah. that you dissolve this government guarantee. Exactly, but many market observers that we talk to say, well, actually, it gives, if anything, a stronger 
guarantee to the ring fence part because it's very categorical that you know this isn't too big to fail. Yeah. These are the parts we really care about. So what does that mean so, for customers? So then? what that means is, you know, well, that should keep a lid on the increased credit costs. That's one side of it. Another side of the ICB report, which we barely discussed, which is their duty to promote competition in these markets. And that has been somewhat overshadowed by these huge, you know, far-reaching structural reforms. But the Commission believe these changes could be very profound, actually. And they're basically centred around easing the switching process for current account holders. You know, this has been a huge gripe for many people for many years that, you know, the, the biggest four High street banks control nearly 80% of current accounts. You know, they want to break that market open. They want to get new entrants in. So they've endorsed a new switching service that will mean people can transfer within seven days at no cost. And they're forcing banks to be much more transparent around the charges that they have on certain accounts. So they'll no longer be able to sort of offer, you know, free service, which is disproportionately weighted to, you know, these high penalty charges on overdrafts and and so on. And some people think this is basically going to mean the the end of so-called free banking. So John was talking about it yesterday. I'm more sceptical about that because, you know, you talk to any of the banks and they just say, look, this would never work in Britain. You can't just withdraw something that's so ingrained in our culture and mindset that people don't pay a monthly fee for their bank accounts, but they'll get around it by starting to charge more for certain products, you know, credit cards that offer cash back, this sort of thing, just costing a couple of pounds a month. We're moving in that direction, although it might not be, you know, a big, this is the end of free banking. No bank will ever want to do that before any of the competitors do, and no one will want to to be the first to do it, and no regulator would want to come in and say, okay, well, this is an industry-wide ban, effectively, you know, that wouldn't work either. Certainly no politician would want to be seen to do that. But if you look at the evolution of banking in the U.S., free bank has disappeared there. Over a 30-year period, there was less and less, and you basically can't get it anymore. How did it disappear? What was the trigger? Well, on that? gradually, there started to be fewer and fewer accounts that were free, and you started to be charged for using, for example, an ATM machine that isn't your bank's. And that was probably the easiest one, was that, you know, from now on, you know, something like Barclays that has lots of machines, so its its customers can't really complain, could start charging you for using NatWest machines. Yeah. Or... They have started going down that road a little bit. We saw RBS do exactly that, but only for the holders of its basic bank accounts. So these are people, you know, typically low-earning people who who you know don't qualify for credit cards or overdrafts just have the most simple banking services they're like we can no longer afford to let you go and use any atm you like you have to use you know our branded one so we like you say it could happen very gradually but i don't think there's going to be you know the sort of big bang disappearance of free banking well i think the one thing's for certain is that we're going to hear quite loudly what people really think about this. There was an interesting Harris poll conducted for the FT early this week that showed, I think I'm right in saying, broad support for structural changes. But Charlene, what, what did they say about people's preparedness to pay for those well, uh, changes? Exactly it. There was a broad support, as you say, for you know taking tough action on the banks, separating traditional banking from the investment banking. All of that people were very keen on. But when it came to the question of, well, look, you know, this might mean that you have to pay more for your banking services as a result of the cost of tougher regulation. Very few people were willing to do that at all. I think it's about 70% of people were absolutely not willing to pay any more. And only 5% said they definitely would. Very good. That's all we have time for, sadly, today. What's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Charlene in the studio. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week and a normal show, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com 
forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.